This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Co-artistic directors of the festival, Rachel Healy and Neil Armfield, join us on the line from Adelaide. Good morning. Hi, Richard. Hi, Richard. So, I guess... uh, My first question for both of you is, just looking at the program, it seems significantly larger than the 2018 festival, which featured, what, 48 theatre, music, opera, dance, film and visual arts events. Uh, In uh, 2019, you're offering more than 70 events. Has the the program really grown that significantly and how did you achieve that growth? Um. (laughs) Well, so the second question is, is predicated by the first. It has it has expanded a bit, um, uh, but I think to, to count it as seventy includes uh, a lot of um, um, uh, smaller events. The, the I, I, like the the program has has certainly grown. I don't know if it's grown by thirty percent though. Has it, Rachel? No, uh, uh, I think it sort of depends on you know how, uh, what you count and if you count every individual sort of long lunch and and palais concert and so on. I mean it. it Certainly not the case that you know that we had a, a massive financial windfall. Um, uh, it's it's still, I think, a sort of very uh, carefully curated program. In that uh, there's just as many terrific shows that are that didn't make it to the list as, as there are the, the absolute cream of the crop. Um, and uh, you know, we, we just try and, and create the best program we can, rather than. Uh, measure it by width, I guess. And you also increase though each year, I'd say, uh, from seventeen to eighteen to nineteen. Yeah. Um, one of the things that also I wanted to speak about the the program is uh, you, obviously you're not curating for size, nor are you curating by theme. But nonetheless, there are themes that are emerging from the program, and that's what because artists are tapping into the zeitgeist, they're exploring collective concerns and so forth. And I know that yeah. human displacement and migration is one of those themes. Rachel, do you want to speak? a little bit to that yeah that's right um i mean we we certainly didn't start by looking for works that were traversing a particular issue but once we had uh come up with our our sort of must-have list it was very clear that artists all over the world are interested in similar things and you can see patterns in uh the issues that they are are tracking and and reflecting on even though the 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 results of their work are wildly different. Um, and human migration, forced human migration, is something uh, that you can see across a number of the artists from different companies, uh, from, yes, from, from different countries. Um, in the theatre program, uh, Manus from Iran, uh, uh, we have an incredible um, photo, uh, exhibition from uh, 23 uh, Greek photojournalists, um, which is a, a free exhibition that goes across the whole festival uh, called Another Life, Human Flows, Unknown Odysseys, which is all about the Greek experience of of forced migration and and refugees seeking asylum in Europe via Greece. Um, You even see it in in major pieces of of theatre, like A Man of Good Hope. Uh, And it's clearly part of of what Hoffes Schechter is concerning himself with in Grand Finale in the Contemporary Dance Programme. So it really traverses all art forms, uh, all scales, uh, and as I say, very different perspectives, but uh, but similar issues. I think that at this at this time in the in the world, there is uh, there is an experience of, of, of kind of massive movements of, of people on, on, on an almost biblical scale, and that, that artists are responding to that, and human beings are responding to that, 
in very different ways to, uh, to governments. Now, one of the things that certainly has jumped out uh, at me from the program is the diversity of countries that are represented. It's quite traditional in uh, in some of the, the main kind of international arts festivals. We, we're used to seeing quite a bit of work from Germany, for example, or from yeah. other European countries. But here we've got theatre from Portugal. We don't get to see a lot of Portuguese theatre uh, in this country. Yeah. We've got dance from Argentina. And again, uh, there, there hasn't been a huge amount of contemporary work uh, program that we've seen from South America. Uh, so yeah. talk to us about casting the net wider to, to really represent some some global trends and ideas as well as spectacular art um, I, I mean again we don't uh, we don't sort of go in search of work from Brazil for example or, or from you know Iran uh, but uh, in our travels both of us make a special effort if we know that there is this work on at a festival or, or a showcase uh, that uh, includes artists from different countries. We we make a special effort to get in front of that work, um, and, uh, and and that's you know all the reasons you say. It, it's about providing multiple viewpoints and multiple perspectives from all over the globe. Yeah, I think I think there is a sense that uh, festivals often tend to be Eurocentric, and uh, and so we just you know we just and it's great having uh, two artistic directors in this sense because we can kind of. Uh, scan um, in in um, sort of 360 degrees, if you like, and and uh, as we're in different parts of the world, we'll go and seek work um, from that that represents kind of a much more of a of a global kind of uh, pool. Now, one of the works that was announced early before the launch of the main program uh, is the, uh, the the short season over, I think, five performances of The Magic Flute, directed by Barry Kosky, and with, uh, by all accounts, an incredibly vivid uh, projection-style uh, approach to it. So instead of tradi- a more traditional staging with sets and props, uh, the company 1927 providing the video backdrop. Uh, talk to us a little bit about this, company, this particular production, because I'm sure for many many people who uh, heard about it and have booked in advance to attend the festival, that this is obviously one of the big draw card items for the festival next year. Yeah, Barry Kosky, um, you know, once again, is, is kind of sort of setting the rules for the art form. He's, uh, uh, he's been now for, for some six years at the Commercial Opera in Berlin, and opera um, has become internationally this... this uh, all of a sudden, there's this, you know, very hip and new... Uh, form of theatrical entertainment. Um, Barry combined with uh, with 1927, uh, who we remembered for their work Gollum, uh, which came to Adelaide five years ago. Um, and um, it is just, uh, it is utterly thrilling. Uh, it, it kind of takes the opera uh, into the world of, uh, of silent movies, of, of, um, uh, of early um, uh, animation, Betty Boop, and Felix the Cat, um, and uh, and is utterly playful with the music. The music is is in itself um, uh, was always conceived as a really as a family entertainment uh, from Mozart. Um, and uh, and by having the silent movie uh, context, Barry's able to cut out the long scenes of, of dialogue, which are always a problem in in this particular opera because they become uh, sort of silent movie captions. Um, and it's just, it is constantly inventive. Um, and 
it's been a sort of a, a massive worldwide hit, really, of the uh, of uh, of the modern world. Yeah, it's been. I mean, it's been, it's been to uh, 22 different countries. It's been seen at, uh, by a jaw-dropping half a million people around the world. Like people have gone absolutely nuts for it, and uh, you know the the effort to secure this this opera uh, by festival directors around the world are sort of legendary. Um, so we are absolutely delighted that, that we've finally been able to, uh, to present it in Australia. If you've just tuned in, uh, I'm speaking with the co-artistic directors of Adelaide Festival about their 2019 program, which was recently launched, the festival itself running from the 1st to the 17th of March. And one of the things I like to acknowledge uh, on this particular program is that, yes, Triple R is a Melbourne station. Uh, Smart Arts is about the art in Melbourne, but uh, the art ecology is connected works will uh, premiere in one city later tour to a next artists move between cities and uh, visitors move between cities as well uh, i think one of the things that is defining uh, your festivals as co-artistic directors is you've really um, pr- i think tried to would it be fair to say tried to recapture that sense of adelaide festival being the art festival that the Australian art sector as a whole must go to. Certainly there's been a, a real sense of people wanting to return to Adelaide and, and that's something that I know, having spoken to both of you in the past, that that was something that you were striving to recapture through your programming, that the, the centrality of Adelaide Festival to the Australian arts ecology. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I grew up here and, and Neil lived here in the 80s and that that's our inheritance. That's what the Adelaide Festival always was and, and I, I would say not just uh, not, it's not just the, the go-to festival for the arts community. I think it's also increasingly for arts lovers. Uh, we launched for the first time in many years in Sydney a couple of weeks ago. So we launched the program because our Sydney audience has grown so enormously, and uh, as well as Melbourne, which is only a tad behind uh, behind Sydney. And uh, and I think that every city is has its own idiosyncrasies. Every festival is different. But the Adelaide Festival was always something that that, uh, that had the most uh, talked about, the most thrilling artists from around the globe, and you had to travel to Adelaide to see their work. The, the alumni of artists who've been through the Adelaide Festival since 1960 are just second to none, and we take that uh, that inheritance incredibly seriously, and it's certainly been a priority for us to re-establish that role. It's, it's pretty clear that the, the, the great festivals around the world uh, are in cities that are of a smaller scale uh, than the than the big cities like uh, you know like New York or London or Sydney or Melbourne, uh, and so Avignon and Ev- and Edinburgh uh, and Aix-en-Provence and Salzburg and Adelaide uh, are really the, um, uh, the 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 cities which which transform themselves and and so going to that city at festival time uh, is is a is a really an experience of total immersion and the, and the city kind of um, turns itself uh, over uh, to the experience of the festival in a way that is just not possible in a larger city. Certainly, uh, the Edinburgh Festival and the Edinburgh Festival Fringe are examples of, uh, of a smaller city being taken over by art. And, uh, Rachel, I might get you to speak to this particular work, Ulster American, which I know was a kind of one of the kind of shows of, of Edinburgh recently, which is coming over for Adelaide. Yeah, this is... Uh, this is a- an incredibly thrilling uh, coup, I think, for the Adelaide Festival because this was a work that sold out extremely fast in Edinburgh uh, within sort of 24, 36 hours. For the rest of the festival, there were queues around the block. 
people trying to get the one or two return tickets. Uh, it went on to win the Carol Tambor Best of Edinburgh Award, which comes with the £25,000 prize money, and that prize money has to be spent on taking the successful work to New York. Uh, and my understanding is that they're already in dialogue with Broadway producers. So to secure a work like this uh, straight out of it, its premiere season, uh, again exclusive to Adelaide, is incredibly thrilling. And I think the reason that it has been so successful is that it really touches the, the, the zeitgeist. It, it's, it was written before the Weinstein um, uh, uh, news uh, broke uh, and the Me Too movement, but it absolutely touches those themes. It is laugh out loud, hysterically funny, but also very shocking. And, uh, I mean, I, I can't remember sitting in a theatre... Uh, on the literally on the edge of my seat, unable to move. Uh, it's just one of those utterly unforgettable pieces of theatre. And if we're speaking about utterly unforgettable, Neil, I know you're, uh, you spoke uh, with passion the last time I spoke to you about this particular uh, project, the fact that one of the great dancers in the world, Natalia uh, Osipova, is performing uh, in Meryl Tankard's Two Feet at Adelaide Festival next year. Yes, Meryl Tankard uh, created this work for herself uh, right back in 1988 and then uh, has uh, performed it in, in a number of places. Osipova uh, is considered um, one of the greatest uh, dancers of the world. Uh, she was, uh, she's been listed as one of the 12 greatest dancers of all time. Three of them are, uh, are, are still um, alive and kicking. Um, and uh, Osipova uh, had heard, through Maina Gilgood, actually, uh, of, um, of Meryl Tankard's work, and, to get, and they talked together and, and realised that it would be a brilliant thing to, uh, for Osipova to work with Meryl and, to, uh, and to, um, to create another iteration, if you like, of, of Two Feet. It's based on the, the story of, um, of, of Olga Spesitseva, who came to... Australia in, in, uh, uh, with a, a Russian-French company in, in 1930s uh, and who was, a, who was a great Giselle, as uh, Osipova herself is. Osipova has won the, the Prix Benoit de Danse, the, the kind of uh, dance Oscars for, for her Giselle. And, um, and Spetsitseva uh, went mad, actually, uh, had a nervous breakdown in Australia and... Um, um, through the, the kind of dedication, her utter dedication to, to um, perfectionism. And um, uh, Meryl Tankard took Spetsitseva's story and layered her own onto it and, in that, and, and now is, uh, is, is doing the same, uh, you know, following the same approach, uh, working with, uh, with this amazing Natalia Osipova. Now, there's so many other aspects of the program that I'd like to speak to, but we're almost out of time. I wanted to acknowledge the fact that there are great local companies from Adelaide presenting work in the program. Windmill Theatre Company, for example, collaborating with Imaginate to present Baba Yaga. And I'm absolutely thrilled that, uh, one of, to me, one of the, the great circus companies, not only in Australia, but one of the great contemporary circus companies in the world, Gravity and Other Myths, have got a brand new show as well. Uh, yeah. Uncle Vanya uh, from uh, the La Mama production is coming over uh, and many other works but the the work that has perhaps most piqued my interest is one involving soap made of human fat can you tell us a little more yes this is this is an amazing uh work uh but it, it, it takes the form of a of a retail outlet so this 
uh, sort of high-end soap shop will open up uh, for the 17 days of the festival, and you can uh, you can buy the soap, and it has been made uh, with fat which has come uh, donated fat that's come through patients who've elected to have liposuction. Uh, the, the the point of it is that the artist uh, uses the proceeds from every bar of soap sold to support uh, the construction of wells in a particular village in the Congo. So he's asking, uh, I guess, festival audiences to think about uh, how the excesses of the first world can be repurposed into third world aid. Uh, an equivalent bar of soap is also donated the same village in the Congo. So uh, essentially they get soap and they get money uh, using the, uh, the, the end result of the West's decadence, if you like. And it's a... Um, I saw it in, in Holland. It's... Uh, well, speaking of unforgettable, it also sits inside that category. It is an incredible experience. The title Schuldfabrik means... Um um, uh, Schuld is both debt and guilt, uh, and so it does. It plays with the uh, it, it plays with the the kind of um, that uh, in that liminal area of, of first world guilt about its consumption of uh, uh, consumption of wealth. Uh, there's a, a kind of irony, I guess, that um, uh, it's a commentary on consumption, but targeted at audiences, many of whom will be perhaps flying interstate in order to consume art at the Adelaide Festival, uh, running from the 1st to the 17th of March 2019. Uh, more information at www.adelaidefestival.com.au. Rachel Healy and Neil Armfield, co-artistic directors, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks a lot, Richard. Thank you, Richard. We're going to find out all about Polar Force. I'm joined by Eugene Ugetti, who's the Artistic Director of local company Speak Percussion. Eugene, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me. So let's, uh, let's kind of begin. What, what is Speak Percussion for people who don't know the company and its work? Well, we're a music organisation that focuses all of our work around percussive projects. So it's not just percussion instruments, but it's a whole uh, philosophy around that artistic practice so instrument building engaging with spaces thinking about materials um, that can then translate into instruments and into into forms and so on so we have a you know a tradition of playing commissioned pieces of music but at the same time we we collaborate with really diverse artists as well so we can work with architects and theater makers and um, instrument builders and scientists and so on so it's been a really broad um, collection of works that we've made over the years. Yeah. And for this latest work, Polar Force, which is presented in association with Art Centre Melbourne, this is kind of what a sonic, an immersive sonic exploration of Antarctica. It is, yeah. So I'm working with uh, Dr. Philip Samartz, a sound artist uh, who has been twice an artist in residence at, in Antarctica. And he's made hundreds of hours of pristine field recordings that are sort of the starting point for the work. And so we, we present these field recordings in multi-channel surround um, speaker playback system. And then what I'm doing is I'm creating live music using those materials. So essentially ice, wind and water are my three sonic materials. 
And that, so they're, they're manipulated live. We worked with the industrial design department of um, RMIT to build a whole series of bespoke instruments just for the project we've even built an inflatable performance space to put the work into so it feels like you're in an antarctic base station and what you're hearing literally is the sounds of antarctica and the materials of antarctica being the coldest driest and windiest continent on the face of the planet how do you play ice as an instrument well look there was a lot of experiments we did to get to where we are now and what what I mean, it, ice is at its best when it's in flux, you know, when it's, when it's melting or when it's cracking or when it's, when it's doing those things because generally it's fairly dormant. Yeah, but it's not the most resonant of, of uh, materials, I must say, and it's also incredibly hard to use above freezing um, temperatures because it's obviously changing form. So what we do is um, we do a, a lot of work underwater with the ice, so using hydrophones. And we're getting the ice to crack and split and, and, and behave more texturally than, than anything else. Because certainly the sound, I've, I've heard audio recordings of grinding ice, for example, from Antarctica or from the Arctic. Not much ice left in the Arctic these days, I guess. But, uh, and so, yeah, there is that kind of um, that strange splintering, cracking sound. Uh, but then adding to that the sound of water, the sound of wind, kind of, is an intriguing combination. It's pretty amazing. And I think, you know, there are times where you hear some of the field recordings, you think, oh, yeah, I know exactly what, where, what that is or where that could be. And there are other times where you hear things like the glaciers rubbing up against each other and they start to sound like these exotic animals. Um, it's incredible. Some of the sounds, that some of them sound electronic, some of them sound like things you've never heard before. And so it provides a very, very fertile sort of sonic starting point for a major work, which this is. It's an over, over an hour-long new work. Have you been to Antarctica yourself? Never. So this is, what well, a chance to kind of experience it without having to go there. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of how we're thinking about it as well. It's like, you know, imagine if you could visit Antarctica, but you were just going there, you know, with your ears, essentially. Which is a, a fascinating creative challenge, and I'm, I'll be curious to know how many of the audience members then eventually sit there with their eyes closed kind of to, 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 to just listen as opposed to watching how the sound is being made while listening. Yeah, I mean, that's an important problem that we've been dealing with as, as uh, creators, I think, because the work will be visually very um, beautiful, I think. You know, all of the instruments are custom designed. We've even bought a floor. Um, there's costumes. There's, you know, custom-made lighting as well for the work. So it'll be very beautiful on a visual level. But I think you're absolutely right. I think Eyes Closed gives you the most kind of creative freedom to interpret what you're hearing because it's not based around you know, conventional um, harmonic principles or, you know, song forms and things. This is, you know, highly experimental music that deals with, um, you know, raw field recordings as much as anything else. Knowing then that part of the audience will be sitting there with their eyes closed, why go to all the effort of creating the space that they're performing and creating costumes and so forth? That's a good question. Um, I think for two reasons. I, I mean, I think it does trigger the fantasies of the audience um the first question i asked was well why bother having any live music why not just field why not make it a sound art installation work and um the answer to that was well we're not actually going to be musicians in the performance we're sound researchers and th the whole environment is set up like that it's set up like a science lab and the performers whilst we are playing music we are behaving and 
looking like we're engaged in scientific research with tubes and we're kind of testing the force of certain energies and you know um, applying pressures to certain things and that then delivers this this um music event so it's to set the it's to, to create a fantasy to set a sort of context for where the work is being created and as you say you've even uh you're enhancing that process uh by creating a shelter that people will be sitting inside an inflatable space which as you said is evoking the uh the the huts and the sheds that uh you might be working in if you're a researcher down in antarctica but then also presumably um in terms of imaginative space evoking igloos Evoking a kind of a whiteout if you're in the middle of a blizzard, for example, as well. Exactly, and I think so. Part of it, yeah, is is feeding that uh, um, fantasy, but on the other hand, it's also shutting out the other things that one would normally see in the theatre. So the lighting grid, the walls, the you know the nature of the space that you're in is gone suddenly because you're in this completely white igloo-like structure. So. Yeah, that's the other advantage too. It shuts out everything else. So, you know, the, the work is going to tour. We'll be in Perth in January and, and hopefully it'll go overseas and around Australia. But um, And the idea is that no matter where we are, whether it's a warehouse or a theatre, or it'll always look the same. The work uh, is called Polar Force and is created, uh, one of the, the latest works created by Speak Percussion. Uh, and I'm, I'll be intrigued to see the kind of uh, physical response that the work will have on people, given that it's evoking somewhere cold, somewhere windy, you know, will it? Will people themselves actually start to feel cold because the imaginative power and the and the the sonic textures that uh, they're exposed to are triggering that kind of um, physiological response? I think they will. Um, two things that happen. Firstly, the audience take their shoes off when they enter the space. That's partly because we've got a white floor, but it's partly a sort of ritual. Uh, it's normally what happens in Antarctica anyway. The, the outdoor shoes come off. Um, we're thinking about chilling the space to some degree, not freezing cold, but a bit colder than usual. And the other thing is the lighting is all in a cool white. So as well as hearing the water and the and, and the ice, literally ice in front of you, I think all of those things combined, it will, will create uh, the feeling of, of you know, um, of the cold. Yeah. You, we've spoken about playing ice as a musical instrument. Uh, what are the, so then water is another one as well. And wind. Yeah, wind is the big one, you know, and that's an obvious one um, in the sense that, you know, there are many wind and brass instruments out there in the world. Of course, this project uses wind... I like to think in a fairly phenomenological way in the sense that we're using the flow of air at times just literally blasted into chambers and then we've built whistles, we've built this huge instrument that we call Luska, which is basically an eight, uh, eight big ch- corrugated tubes that come out of one central um, uh, station where we send air that gets pulsated through these tubes and they, they resonate across the um, overtone spectrum and you get these incredibly wild um, um, chords and pulsating co- pulsating chords that come out of that instrument. Um, so we're using high pressure air out of a compressor and we're also using high flow, low pressure air out of a fan um, and that is then controlled through various valves and levers and um, you know it's blasted into water it's blasted into directly into microphones it goes through tubes it goes through whistles um, and then of course the ice and water kind of interact with all of those um, water-based experiments as well and all of this is then accompanied by as you said these kind of pristine field recordings made directly in Antarctica of different environmental sounds as well. So exactly. wind, water, grinding ice, etc. 
Yep. Yep. It sounds fascinating. It yeah, really we're does. very excited about it. Yeah. Um, so Polar Force is this is its what its world premiere. It is. It is. Uh, so happening from the twenty fourth of November until the first of December at Art Centre Melbourne in the rehearsal room for the Playhouse. So I presume that means ex- uh, entering outside, going down. Yeah, the, it's a the beautiful entrance. Yeah. it's a beautiful. The whole experience is 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 kind of um, welcome to the underground. Exactly yeah. dramatized. Yeah. yeah, and um, there there are limited tickets per performance because you're inside the inflatable. Only eighty tickets per show. So I do encourage people to book. I think the first three shows have already sold out. So um, tickets are going. If you're interested, um, jump on it. Yeah. So uh, to book, jump online, artcentermelbourne.com.au or call 1-300-182-183. So that's artcentermelbourne.com.au or 1-300-182-183 to book for Speak Percussions Polar Force happening from the 24th of November to the 1st of December in the rehearsal room for the Playhouse Theatre at Art Centre Melbourne. I've been chatting with the Artistic Director of Speak Percussion, Eugene Ugedi. Eugene, thank you so much for coming in. It really sounds like an intriguing project. Thank you. We heard a track from the new Grand Salvo album. Sea Glass is the name of the album. The track that we heard was called In the Shade. I am joined by my final guests for the morning to uh, talk about an event that's on as part of Melbourne Music Week. Melbourne Music Week itself uh, is like a full week of performances and gigs and parties and conversations and panels covering everything from some of the latest bands you're keen to see through to, I know there's a session on around the role of sound in self-care, for example. But right now, uh, I'm joined by pianist, composer and producer Rose Rebel and sound designer Grace Ferguson to talk about Your Heart So Hot, O Sister, Antigone Reimagined as part of Melbourne Music Week. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Absolute pleasure. So, Rose, I'll get you to kick off. Antigone is an ancient Greek myth, and this is a great... I love the fact that uh, we're having this conversation because only half an hour ago I had some playwrights in talking about a new Australian play also based on an ancient piece of Greek uh, theatre. That was uh, Lysistrata, this is uh, Antigone, but both about women standing up to patriarchy. So It's a hot topic. It's an absolutely hot and very timely topic. Absolutely. Why reimagine it, though? Why not just tell Antigone? Oh, I mean, in a sense... We are telling Antigone, we're just reimagining how we're doing that. So firstly, the fact that it's music and dance is a reimagining. And secondly, I suppose we're taking out all the other characters and we're just looking at Antigone. So we're getting as deep as we can into her kind of psychological and emotional state and into her body. We're sort of trying to breathe out a life with Lillian's movement, Lil, Lil's a dancer, and then me through music and Grace, Grace with sound design, stepping into her kind of as deep as we can. Talk to us about how you got involved with the project. Um, Well, I actually found this copy of Anne Carson's translation of Antigone, which was published um, in 2005, and I read it, and um, I was... Because it was the first play that I studied at school, and so I sort of had this sentimentality to it, and I brought it to Rose, and I was just like, I really want to do something with this because it feels really... Um, it just felt really modern and then sort of taking it the next step from that to how can we do something different because it's one of the most uh, reinterpreted texts. (laughs) 
It's that it certainly is. It's been kind of told again and again and again. Antigone, for those of people who don't know the myth, is the the daughter of Oedipus yes. and, uh, and, his and, and his mother. Yeah. <laughs> so what is it about the myth? That, that, let's just start with that central idea of the myth itself and retelling this story. What is it about the story of Antigone that so appeals to you both creatively that you've responded it, to it to, to reimagine it for Melbourne Music Week? Um, look, I mean... What drew me to Antigone after Grace showed me the play was just her her force, her defiance, her power and just her unassailable kind of ability to stand up to something really scary and really difficult. Um, and then I read it a couple more times and I was really drawn to her vulnerability and her almost childlike kind of aloneness which comes comes up throughout the play and her love of a brother, her love of a brother and, and the kind of the weight of and burden of her family history and I think that they're... It's an ancient text and they're ancient ideas, but they're also things that most of us can relate to, I think, at some I mean, point or another. Because part of the story is that she's trying to find some way to bury her brother. Yeah, exactly. Which is kind of like, when you, when you par down to that focus of the story, that yep. that notion of kind of an enduring uh, kind of love for a sibling even after death uh, and the, the, the need to honour them. Yeah, absolutely. Of, yeah, it's such a, a it, it's an idea that cuts to the quick of human emotion. Absolutely. It's, it's a really poignant relationship and those moments in the play are the most beautiful where she's sitting there beside her brother and there's a scene where they say she let out a cry like a bird that's come back to the nest and found it empty i mean it's oh. it's beautiful she's a she's a grieving girl you yeah, know, as well as this defiant woman so to create this production then as you said you've stripped out the other characters mm -hmm. you're just focusing on antigone herself and her experience uh and with kind of lillian grace steiner who's a gorgeous dancer kind of, kind of embodying uh that performance yep. but then with uh piano and the sound design to enrich that and grace i know that you're also a pianist yourself yes so <laughs> uh, which must make then the collaboration kind of uh i guess stronger because you already know kind of the kind of ideas and approach and the language that Rose is using kind of through her composition as well. Totally. Um, so Rose and I have played together at, on the pianos <laughs> um, a couple of times, but I've done a lot more theatre work in the last couple of years and sort of my, my interest has shifted to sort of more uh, drama and um, sort of looking at the sound from more of a objective view and I guess it just makes it a more slip stream of us being able to work together that I know what it's like to play particular parts or that I'll just sort of pick something up and go what about this and it seems to work for people who, who who aren't familiar with what a sound di designer does exactly, maybe tell us what that is because some I, I, some people perhaps will be going. But you've got a pianist creating a live score. What what else do you need? Um, so I guess uh, at its worst, sound design is putting in the twist of a door knob or <laughs> adding sort of like folly. <laughs> But um, in sort of more conceptual works, it's uh, everything that that you hear. So um, I, I always think of sort of a quote from Sam Shepard, which he says about changing the temperature in a room, and I like to think about music sort of and sound design, particularly being able to sort of shift um, 
out of sort of just watching something and being told something and actually feeling it. And so sound design um, at its best is often not noticed because it's something that you feel. In terms of composing uh, a score for this production, Rose, tell us about how you approached it and what kind of sounds and style of music you've come up with. So my process is often nothing for a very long time and then everything all at once. And so working on this production, I read the play again and again and again and I was at an artist residency in Greece actually earlier in the year, which was a beautiful overlap to be in the place that the play is set. And I remember one day it was really hot sitting on the roof reading it again and I just this melody entered my head and it was like da 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 na 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 and I was like, that's it, that's Antigone, that's her moving. And I went downstairs to the piano and I just started playing and almost everything that's in this production came out in the next hour after that. And I've just sort of worked it out um, since that time. But I suppose what I'm really interested in in representing Antigone is the physicality of it. So I'll kind of do battle with the piano in some of the more intense parts where there's conflict and rage and then bring it right back, strip it right back to kind of as close to a human voice as I can make the piano sound in the more vulnerable moments. So... Yeah, And then with uh, Lillian kind of dancing to accompany you, is uh, the, the choreography that she's created, uh, is she trying to embody the, the emotion of the music, for example? What's, what's been the, the, the conversation and the process of bringing her into the work? I guess uh, I was just going to say that from the beginning we wanted the piano to, to also be almost a character and to embody Antigone as much as Lillian. Um, And so throughout the um, performance, you'll see a shift between Rose and Lillian sort of taking on on parts of Antigone. I was just going to say it's such a pleasure working with a dancer like Lillian. She's phenomenal. Like, she's just back from a jam-packed international year around the world, and so it's a very... There's lots of improvisation, lots of kind of working off each other in the same way that you might with another musician. So I'll play something, she'll respond, she'll make a movement, I'll respond, and there's kind of a constant string of of connection between us as the story unfolds. Your Heart So Hot, O Sister, Antigone Reimagined is a a collaboration of pianist, sound artist and uh, contemporary dancer and is being presented uh, for one performance only on Saturday the 17th of November, 8pm, at the Church of All Nations, uh, 180 Palmerston, Palmerston Street in Carlton. Uh, tickets are from $15 to $35, and it's presented as part of Melbourne Music Week. So if people want to book, they go to Melbourne, uh, sorry, mmw.melbourne.vic.gov.au. You can find the details of the production there and the booking details as well. But, yeah, $35 down to $15 for Your Heart So Hot, O Sister, Antigone Reimagined, Saturday the 17th of November, 8pm, the Church of All Nations in Carlton. It sounds like it's going to be a riveting and rather beautiful production. We hope so. Rose and Grace, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for having us. uh, This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.